But I want you to use your imagination for a second. Have you ever seen books on the shelves at a bookstore or on Amazon, wherever you look, near-death experiences, and people have sold millions of copies of a book because they had this experience where they think they've had a glimpse of heaven, and we want to know. Eternity is like. The kingdom of God is like. But just imagine if we could listen to someone who's not only had a glimpse, but actually that's where they live. That's where they reside. And not only do they reside there, they are an expert authority on that place. And this person then says to you, the kingdom of God is like. What would that book be worth? What would it be worth to hear that person and what they had to say? The kingdom of God is like. That phrase stuck in my head all December and, and it was sending me on a, a particular journey. It just wouldn't go away. And I thought, wow, if we started looking seriously at what the kingdom of God is like, how might it even change us if we really listened? The kingdom of God is like. That phrase is used by Jesus a number of times in what we call parables. Parables. So I thought, wow, if we were to take a deep dive into the kingdom of God is like. In every other parable, it would take us through some 40 or 50 little stories that Jesus has told, depending exactly how you define parable. What if we went on that journey? What might we learn? How might it change our perspective of what we think we're even doing here, let alone in the next life? So. There's a plan to be had here. And the plan is simply this, is that through the better part of the year is to work in through all of these parables that are in Scripture. What do they really say? How do you really understand them? What's Jesus really trying to get through to us? And by the end of uh, this journey that we take through these parables, one of the goals would be that we'd be able to discern them for ourselves, that uh, they wouldn't be confusing or misleading or so cryptic to us anymore, we'd understand. One thing we'd probably discover is the, the work uh, of the parables, what they actually do and how they actually work, may be a little bit different than what we've been traditionally taught. That, Maybe they uh, mean to do something a little different than we might have thought in the past. Now, our thinking probably is based on, the, you know, the dictionaries have a pretty good general definition of parables. It goes like this. Parables are usually short, fictitious stories that illustrate a moral attitude or religious principle. A parable is a short allegorical story designed to illustrate or teach some truth, religious principle, or moral lesson. A parable is a statement or comment that conveys a meaning in indirectly by the use of comparison, analogy, or the like. 
Now, pretty solid definitions, and really you can't go wrong if that's where we're starting with the idea of parables, but it is a generic definition. And what we're interested in is the parables of Jesus, and Jesus is anything but generic. There's no question that Jesus would have spoke about moral principles and that he speaks of uh, uh, religious uh, principles and concepts. Uh, those are, it's impossible to talk about the kingdom of heaven and not talk about high morals or uh, religious overtones. But that's generally what they are, is overtones. And Jesus does use allegories as in the kingdom is like. That's allegorical. 100% allegorical. But often, and very often, if we really dive into the parables of Jesus, he violates all those rules. He does something entirely different. Sometimes violates one of those little uh, definitions, sometimes all of them. So we need to step back when we look at them. And it leads us to the first step in this very special journey we uh, want to take, we need to visit the ground rules of understanding biblical parables. The ground rules. We start there before we even dive in. And there's a lot of information in there. So I'm just going to plug this all the time, but I'm going to do it again. If you only listen to one of the uh, Word for the Weeks that come out on Friday, this one would be one to listen to because... It deals with the ground rules. And the ground rules are going to carry us through a very good part of the year. So it's worth listening to as we go into 2023. So this morning we're going to kind of build off of that, which, are, which is already on there on the, uh, the web slash podcast. And today we're going to look at seven ground rules of understanding parables. Seven ground rules of understanding parables. Ground rule number one, parables are a long familiar tool. A long familiar tool. This is pretty important to realize because we lose something in um, uh, the full nuance of these when we don't understand this. As long as God has had prophets on this earth speaking for him in some form, there have been parables. Bottom line, Jesus did not invent parables. As a matter of fact, even the imagery he uses, you hear this, we were talking about parables. Jesus used all the common things around him, which is true, but it goes beyond that. What Jesus spoke, he used the very imagery that was used by the prophets in the past. Well, what difference does that make? It makes this difference. When you were a Jewish person steeped in the Old Testament, you understood this, and Jesus started a parable, your mind went back to Jeremiah or Isaiah, back to when the kingdom of Israel fell the first time because they didn't, guess what? Listen to the parables. These things became very important. And that's why we'll find many of them end with this. If you have ears, use them. If you have ears, let them hear. Which takes us into number two, in the ground rules, parables are indirect responses, indirect responses to foundational questions. Okay, what exactly does that mean? 
Well, in the practice, practical sense, it means this, is that if you're going to look at a parable, it is totally useless to try and analyze that parable unless you understand the context. Unless you have looked at the verses before that lead into it, because generally, Jesus is going to be speaking on something somebody had said, and this is his reply, coming at it sideways, if you will. And uh, very often it will involve what's at the end to confirm what Jesus is saying. He speaks indirectly in a parable. And what more that means we'll see is that these rules all build on each other. Rule number three, the ground rule would be this, parables are not about you. What? I thought this was how I was supposed to do this or that or the other thing. No, parables are not about you, they're about God. Jesus is revealing things about God. As a matter of fact, as we look at the parables of Jesus, you'll find they all fall into one of three themes. The first theme is the unexpected arrival or nature of God's kingdom. A second theme uh, that will fall in here is the values of God, which always turn the values of mankind upside down. The values of God. There's one thing you know you're starting to get it, is when all the things you thought you knew start doing this. That's what parables do. The third theme is crisis parables. That's what they're called, crisis parables, uh, which literally means moment of decision is what we're coming down to there. And the purpose of all of them, they illustrate God. They illustrate something of God's kingdom. It exposes you to that truth, and that's where you come in. It's then, once you are exposed, what are you going to do with it? Here's God's reply to something we asked. Now, what are you going to do? What's your reply? What's your response to what God has just told you? You'll have a point of decision you'll have to make in there. That's three rules. Here's number four. Parables are meant to illustrate a single undergirding truth. This is really important. A parable is meant to illustrate a single undergirding truth. For example, consider the parables of the sheep and the goats or the parable of the talents. They are not theology lessons. What do you mean? They're being taught by Jesus. How could it not be a theology lesson? Even Pam's asking me, right, Pam? I'm, I'm getting the squinty eye from Pam over there. Oh, so you're doing it for rich. Very good. This is what I mean. If it was a theology lesson, the sheep and the goats or the talents, you remember how they go, they, they, what they do, right? <clears throat> the sheep are showing compassion even though they don't know they're showing it to Jesus. The goats aren't. The talents are, are people using their gifts and doing what they can. Well, <clears throat> if we used it as a theology lesson, this would be how you were saved. Well, if that's how you were saved, we have a problem because if it's how you were saved, that means you work for your salvation. You would be working for your salvation. 
And then that would become a problem because scripture then would conflict with scripture. Ephesians, for example, tells us specifically and clearly that you cannot work for your salvation. No one is saved by the works, lest any man should boast. Salvation is solely a gift of God. Well, scripture doesn't conflict with scripture, so what's going on? Well, these stories are meant to illustrate an undergirding truth. It's all about uh, what the journey looks like if you were actually on the path of salvation. This is what it looks like. And so if your journey looks like a sheep, you're on the path of being saved. How does that look? Well, we can go into the details in Romans and everything on how a person is saved, but if you are in a path of salvation, if you are out walking on that path, you are like the sheep in the parable, which would be this. Jesus, I didn't know that was you in need. I just saw a person in need, and so I met their need. I heard there was a church in Scotland that really needed help. So naturally, I just went there. Uh, there was someone on the street. I didn't know who they were. They were, they were but, so I cared for them. Uh, and uh, so I didn't know it was you. And Jesus says, well, when you have done it to the least, you have done it to me. You did it because my heart is in you. And if my heart's in you, you'll instinctually do what you're supposed to do. You will look like me instinctively. Of course you will, because my heart's in you. That's a sheep. What about a goat? Well, a goat <clears throat> is more like this in the parable. Jesus, if I knew it was you, I would have did something. You know, if, if I knew someone was the Lord, I would have done it. If I knew the Lord was looking, I would have been compassionate. If nobody's looking, why should I be pious? Why should I do it if I can't look pious before other people? If I knew it was you, Lord, then I would have done it because it's all about show. It's all about how I look. Well, that's a goat. And goats don't do very well in this parable, do they? So you're left with this overriding, what heart is in you? What are you really doing? Are you a sheep or are you a goat? Are you willing to look at yourself enough to be that way? If the heart of Jesus, <coughs> you'll respond like Jesus. If the heart of Jesus is in you, you respond like Jesus. It'll be in your nature. If that's not the case, no matter how churchy a person might appear, well, even so, you're a goat. <clears throat> that's the meaning of the parables. Kathy is deciding I need a drink. <laughs> Sheep get thirsty. For the word, right? Parables have a single overriding principle. That's what a parable is all about. And one way that facts play out in parables is you have to be careful not to overanalyze the symbolism. If there's one big point you're supposed to be getting, you've got to be careful not to overanalyze the symbolism. 
in the early church, I'm talking like the second, third, fourth century, they were really into hidden symbols. As a matter of fact, even the best of them. And it was pretty clever, really. In the fourth century, Augustine analyzed the stuffing out of the Good Samaritan. Catch this. This is, this is all the symbolism he pulled out of this. We all know it, right? Dude's coming down. He's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, which to this day is a road for bandits. That's why Jesus used it. Gets beat up, gets robbed. Somebody's nice to him. It's a Samaritan. Takes him off to an inn in Jericho and, you know, and, and heals and pays for his healing or his medicine. Here's what Augustine pulled from all of this. Jerusalem was the blessed... Uh, the blessedness from which Adam fell, the thieves were the devil's minions, the near death of the traveler is the oppression of sin. The priesthood represented the Old Testament, the Samaritan is God himself. Binding the wounds, wounds is restraining sin, the oil used in, in the healing is the Holy Spirit working, the donkey represents Jesus in the flesh, the inn is the church, Tomorrow, as the uh, Good Samaritan uses the word, represents the resurrection. The two pence he pays for the uh, medicine and care are precepts of love now in the promised life to come. And the innkeeper is the yet to happen, the Apostle Paul. Man, that's pretty clever stuff in there. But you know what? Sometimes a donkey is just a donkey. Sometimes a road is just a road. The strategy of a parable is to take a familiar scenario. Now we have to use our imagination because most of us probably haven't walked the Jericho or rode on the Jericho road. But you take a common scenario and you put objects that are familiar to you in it in order to make the story stick in order to illustrate this. And then, if you make the story stick, then you make the principle stick. That's what they're all about. If we look at this in context, what set off this whole parable about the Good Samaritan? Somebody asked the question, who is my neighbor? And this was the answer. You want to know who your neighbor is? Here it is. And of course, in the economy of God, a Samaritan, you just couldn't do worse than that, right? A Samaritan was, for them, would have been the worst person possible. The teaching will stick in the listener's head because the story will stick in the, lesson, in the uh, listener's head. So parables are really sticky stories. Maybe we'll put a book out like that sometime. Just call it sticky stories. Ground rule number five. Parables, if you look at them, will involve one to three characters. And if you follow the trend of parables, you'll find that the more characters, when you get to three characters, the more pointed the parable. The more pointed the parable. And another trend you'll find is that the parables become more pointed, less indirect, the closer Jesus gets to Jerusalem. The closer he gets to the cross, he starts being clearer and clearer in what he's saying in these parables. Ground, uh, ground rule number six is this. Parables are only for people with ears. Are only for people with ears. In a number of parables, Jesus ends with this phrase. He who has ears... 
let him hear. Or you might say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. I love the phrase in, if you were to do word for word from the original Greek, it's this. The one having ears to be hearing, let him be hearing. The one who has ears to be hearing, let him be hearing. All, and when you hear that phrase, what it means is there's a warning, there's a challenge, there's an alert, all rolled up in one. This is really, really important. Listen up is what he's saying here. Do you have ears? Or more precisely, do you have a heart and a mind that is willing and courageous enough to hear what is actually being said? Do you have those kind of ears? And it's important because if you miss that big point that is being made in that parable, you may miss everything because it is the undergirding for everything else you'll hear. You miss that, nothing else matters. That's how important to have ears that hear. There's a disturbing scene and we tend to have a lot of problem with it. Everybody at one point or another was probably confused or disturbed by it, if we were honest. And it follows the parable of the sower and the seed. Jesus gives this wonder analogy, this wonderful analogy, and everybody just stares at him like deer in the headlights, right? What does that mean? So following this parable, Matthew 13, 10, it starts like this. Then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Obvious question, right? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secret of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance, but the one who has not even what he has will be taken away. Doesn't sound very fair, does it? This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. For this people's heart has grown dull. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Sounds unfair, but what's going on? Well, Jesus quotes from Isaiah. So we'd have to go back and Think a little bit on the scenario back in the time of Isaiah. What has happened in the time of Isaiah? Israel divided into two. Remember that? They couldn't get along. Can you imagine church people not getting along? Hard to believe, isn't it? Never. Never. There was civil war. There was a church divide. North and south of the kingdom. And one was barely any better than the other. And they wouldn't listen. 
And Isaiah tried to tell them, so they put him in a log and sawed him in two. Then they didn't treat the other prophets too much better. They wouldn't hear what was being told to them. They chose not to hear. The words were there, but they chose not to hear. So when Jesus is speaking, he's saying it's the same thing. The same thing is going on. Old and New Testament, the same thing. And this is why, because no matter how far back we look, here is the big picture. People are a mix. Even within the church, even within buildings like this, people are a mix. It's always been that way. We have the rebellious and we have the remnant. We have those who are ready to be steered into deeper truth and we have those, well, man, not really. A lot of it's just water on the duck's back. And Judas sat hour after hour hearing the same teaching as Peter and the other apostles. The young ruler who walked away sadly heard the same teaching as Lazarus who was raised from the grave. The Sanhedrin Pharisee who slapped Jesus in the face heard the same words that Nicodemus heard when he came to Jesus face to face. The fellow in the pew who has no more understanding after five or ten years has heard the same preacher, good or bad, as the person who is going to Scotland on a mission trip. Same words. Different responses to the words. He who has ears, let him hear. How does one grow? And how does one not grow? The basic line, the bottom line is this, is that in ourselves, in our heart of hearts, we choose not to. Or we choose to. One or the other. And that brings us to that third theme that may sound a little uh, strange to you, crisis principles. Basically, it's this, a realization and a decision. A realization and then a moment of decision. You're exposed to a truth, and then what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? One of the greatest of, say, of a crisis, because Jesus used these, but three centuries even before Isaiah, a thousand years before Jesus, we find them. Maybe you remember this story. David should have been off with his troops in the field, and he wasn't. And he's looking out the window, and then, as Scripture says, there was a really hot babe taking a bath on a rooftop. It's Kevin's translation. But he sees uh, this uh, Bathsheba as this, this wife of one of his most trusted and good friends who was a general. Now, it's not that she was doing anything wrong because in the culture and the heat and everything, that's the way things were done. But David had a higher house, so he was somewhere he shouldn't have been uh, at the time, looking somewhere he shouldn't have been looking, doing something he shouldn't have been doing. And we all know the story. He gets caught in this web and it ends up with lies and deceit and murder and adultery as he takes uh, the wife of his friends. David is on a very dark path. Even somebody who was, uh, had the Lord's own heart, he was on a very dark path. 
He was going somewhere he shouldn't be going. And then along comes a prophet, Nathan, trusted. And guess what Nathan does to approach and confront David? He uses a parable. And it goes like this, 2 Samuel 12, 1, it starts and, and he says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of the, his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was willing to take one of his, he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against that man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore that lamb fourfold before, uh, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are that man. You are that man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? That's where it comes down to, doesn't it? Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Can you imagine David in this? He thinks he's got away with this. Nathaniel tells this parable that is very familiar, very compelling, this little story, very compelling to David, who had grown up really as a poor shepherd. He was the, the last in the line out there get, getting left with the sheep. He knew what it was like to have a lamb as your pet. He knew all of this. So there's the sticky story. And boy, is it despicable when he hears what this person does. And then to turn around and say, yeah, that's quite a story, right, David? Yeah, yeah. you are that man slapped in the face by the truth of the situation, he realizes, what will David do? There's a word familiar with us. We talk about cover-ups all the time in government or in politics or businesses. People cover up the wrong they did. What's David going to do? He's the big king. Is he going to cover up more? Kill, kill Nathan so maybe the word doesn't get out at all? Or is he going to live up to the truth? 
How is he going to respond? Here it is. You are that man. Here's your moment of decision. What are you going to do? What does David do? Well, 2 Samuel 12, we'll continue with 13. Just very quickly, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He's going to own up. He's going to own up. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also put away your sin. You shall not die. Just think. If he would have tried the cover up, it would have meant his death and his judgment. But what seems the harder, more painful thing to do is allowed him to survive. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is uh, born to you, that's through this adultery, shall die. Man, there's a lesson in here. Then Nathan went to his house. There's a lesson in here. You know, when you refuse to hear, it's not just you who pays. It could be your family. It could be your church family. It could be the people you love the most. There's collateral damage when you don't have ears to hear. Thank God David had ears to hear. And he survives despite the cost. Which brings us down to our last ground rule of understanding parables. Number seven. It's not just a question of ears. It's feet. Not just a question of ears. It's feet. Parables are these compelling stories. They have this singular overriding principle. Don't get lost in a multitude of symbolism, even though you need to understand what's being used in prophetic language. Don't get lost in the, in, in, in the trees and miss the forest. There's a main point that is getting said in every parable, a foundational truth. But is it a truth we'll be willing to hear? And if we're willing to hear, then what will we do? And then what's the definition for repentance? I, I think I'll, I'll spot quiz our elder. Steve, what is repentance as we understand? It's a different direction, but in this case, not just any direction. It's towards God. Well, now you know why I picked on Steve. There, <laughs> there it is. It's not just moving in any direction. It is moving in a direction towards God. So how do you change direction with your feet? You, you take steps one way or the other. So in this, it's not just your ears. It's your feet. You have to do what you now know you have to do. If we look in the reality of why people don't take steps, it really comes down to two things. Some people deflect. That person speaking, who are they to tell me this? Who's that Jesus that he should tell me these things? Who's that preacher? Who's, who's that person? It's interesting, you know, sometimes God uses the worst people to teach you the biggest lessons. But sometimes we deflect, you know, I don't have to listen because that person's not worth listening to. Huh. Thing is, though, no matter where it comes from, the truth is the truth. And if somebody's telling you something that is true, it doesn't really matter who they are. It's true. Is it true about you? 
Some people deflect, some people reject. Those words may be biblical words, but I got to put them through my real life filter, as in, you know, it sounds good to forgive your enemies, but hey, let's get real. If I forgive my enemies, they'll eat me alive. So yeah, I, I agree in principle, but now not so much in real life. Um, seek God with all I've got. Wait a minute. Seek God. Yeah, that's great. But with all I've got? I mean, I've got other things to do. I've got other things to invest in. I have other things in life. What do you mean? It sounds good, but in real life, how can I give all I've got to God? Nah, that's just not going to work so much. And so we don't take steps in that direction. We're going on a journey through the parables through a good part of this year. Because to this day, the church is still a field of wheat and weeds. It's still a pasture of sheep and goats. It's still a varied land of rocky, barren soil and rich, fertile soil. It's also a holy ground where the impossible can happen. In here, with the Holy Spirit, a goat can get changed into a sheep. In here, a weed can get changed into wheat. In here, the soil of your heart can go from stone to rich and fertile. This is a place of the impossible, if we will let it, if we have ears that will hear and feet that will change direction, but not just any direction towards God. Definition of repentance, huh? So my prayer in all of this, not just now, but through the year, we journey through these parables, and we hear these phrases like, the one having ears to be hearing, let him be hearing. We take it seriously. And when we hear, well, if you want to know what the kingdom of God is like, it is like this. And we take the main point seriously. If we did that 42 to 50 times, what might we be like at the end of this year? We might be like Jesus. Well, to the point. We might be like Jesus. We might see like Jesus. We might value like Jesus. We might step like Jesus. We might become the servants of Jesus. That's what parables can do. That's what can happen when we have ears that hear.